Please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 13. And this morning we begin at verse 20. And uh, our text this morning is from chapter 13, verse 20, all the way to the end of chapter 14. Hear God's word. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are numbered and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. It is difficult, if not impossible, for you and me to not let our circumstances affect our faith. On the one hand, when life is going well, in the sense of life going our way, it is not challenging, right, to trust in God then is loving and faithful. On the other hand, when life is filled with trials and tribulations, our go-to response is to question God's relationship toward us. 
so, such that we wonder if he is truly loving and faithful and may even figure that he is against us. And so our faith fluctuates. And we understand perfectly the, the cry of the man in Mark 9, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. It's this perspective that helps us to understand the seeming contradiction that we find here in what Job says in these verses. On the one hand, we might think that Job has no hope for the future after death. His view of death seems to be that once you die, it's all over. Sheol, or the grave, is a place of suffering from which the dead cannot escape. So are we to take Job as saying that he believes there is no hope for the body ever? The language that he uses at first glance seems to support that view, which is why some commentators will say Job had a wrong view of what death involves for the believer. Uh, I've, I've read commentators who boldly say that he did not believe in the resurrection. He did not believe in heaven as, uh, as the place that believers go at death. On the other hand, though, Job uses wording that indicates he does have hope in a future resurrection of the body. Although he also, as we shall see, waffles between doubt and hope. The best approach to this passage is not to take Job's words regarding resurrection as something that he thought about, you know, just for a moment and then rejected. The best approach is not to take Job's words of doubt as what he really believes and then paint him as a man with no belief in a future of hope, as some commentators want to do. To deny a future of hope after death is contrary to saving faith. The best approach is to say that Job, as a man of faith, struggled over having hope for the future. Job offers a description of death that is hopeless, and we will recognize in what sense uh, that would make sense for him. What he says is absolutely correct, right? If one dies under the wrath of God, and that's an important if, if one dies under the wrath of God, then what he says is correct. And of course, that's what Job is struggling with. That's what he actually fears for himself. Am I under the wrath of God? Why am I not forgiven by, by God, even though I have exercised faith? And he, and he offers also, though, a description of, of death that is filled with hope. So in chapter 14 here, he waffles between despair and hope in the context of death. He describes death as the end, then in the middle turns to some words of hope, and then ends the chapter with words of despair. It's clear that Job is struggling. It's not clear that he has determined once and for all that for him death is the end and that he has no hope. The question that Job longs to answer is whether or not this hopeful death applies to him. And uh, this is then the struggle we need to recognize, the struggle of a man of faith. So I've taken as the theme here a longing for life with God, and I've organized the text under four points. First of all, the problem. Second, the finality of death. Third, a hopeful longing. And fourth, a shaky hope. So we begin with the problem. In the section of <coughs> verses 13, 20 through chapter 14, verse 6, so we take that as the first main section, that's all about Job's problem of trying to understand where he stands with God. Based on his experience, he feels that God is coming against him as an enemy, 
rather than as his friend or savior. He can't reconcile what has been happening to him with being a justified sinner. It appears he's not in fellowship with God. And so this struggle that he's having regarding his relationship with God, that's the theme of this first section. And while paragraph breaks are not in the original Hebrew, we're taking chapter 13, verse 20 as the beginning of a new section because here Job turns to addressing God. He had been speaking to his friends. He was telling them of his desire to meet with God and to argue his case with God as one might do in in one's defense in a courtroom. And he expressed his belief that if he were to stand before God, he believed he would be vindicated as a child of God. He explained the understanding that as a mere creature and a sinful one at that, he may be slayed by God, but he's willing to take the risk because he knows that his only hope is in God. And now beginning with verse 20, he addresses God. He asks God to grant him two things that have to do with this problem of his fellowship with God. The main problem is, as verse 20 says, he feels that God is displeased with him. Um, which explains Job's felt need to hide himself from God, or it's possible that the translation would be um, that God has actually hidden his face from Job, which means that God is not willing to look upon Job with favor. This is a problem for Job because he very much wants to meet with God, and there's this dilemma going on with Job of wanting to meet with God and yet dreading to meet with God as things now stand which is understandable. He's just not sure of where, he's, where he stands with God. And so he makes these requests, these two requests. And the first request, verse 21, is that God would withdraw his hand from Job. He's hoping that God will back off from what he believes is judgment, that God will back off and give him relief. The second request is that God would take away the terror and dread that Job anticipates having in God's presence. He wants to meet with God, but he doesn't want to be terrified. It's been rightly said by commentators that really these requests are two parts of the gospel. First part, that through Christ we're saved from the wrath of God. That's what he's wanting to to know. He, He wants to be saved from the wrath of God. And second, enabled to serve God without fear. These two aspects of the gospel match well with these two requests of of Job. And as we move down through the last verses of chapter 13 and the first six verses of chapter 14, we find Job fleshing out the reasons for his requests. Verse 22 explains Job's desire that he and God be able to meet on friendly terms, whether Job takes the, the... the initiative and he speaks and God replies or God takes the initiative and calls out to him. And at the heart of Job's concern is that for some reason God is holding Job's sin against him. And we find the three words for sin here in these verses, the word sin and the word iniquity and the word transgression. Sin being a missing of the mark, iniquity being an error that brings judgment and transgression being rebellion against God. And as Job evaluates his life in the light of all of these forms of sin, he doesn't know of any outstanding sin that would account for God coming against him with what he perceives to be such wrath that he would be stripped of his children, his wealth, and his health. And he pleads with God to make him to know his transgressions and sin. 
Uh, notice how Job rightly knows that we don't always recognize, we don't always see the sins that we commit. And this is a, a spirit of submission on Job's part as he's asking God to reveal any problem areas that he might repent. This reminds me of the, the psalmist in Psalm 19, verse 12, where he says, Who can discern his errors? Um, deliver me, uh, de- or Declare me innocent, he says, from hidden faults. These hidden faults. And uh, meanwhile, Job says, God has hidden his face, and, and he's counted Job as an enemy. Sometimes God looks upon people in wrath. He can also hide his face by refusing to look toward unrepentant sinners with love and blessing. And Job considers himself to be like, he says, like a leaf or like chaff being blown in the wind. And uh, we recognize those as figures that are often used in Scripture to describe the the lives of the wicked under God's judgment as their, their lives are blown away. Job is using this figure to point out how weak he is before the power of God, as well as how unnecessary it is for God to frighten and pursue him. He, he points out that God has written down bitter things against him, made him to inherit the iniquities of his youth. So Job is trying here to come up with some kind of an explanation for what God is doing. And he figures that he must be decreeing all of these troubles that have been brought against him and he must have have decreed these 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 bitter things as the reward for iniquities that he committed in his youth years before you can you can see how this just raises more questions i mean is there is there anyone who can claim that in their youth they never did foolish sinful things is there anyone who doesn't regret their past at least on some level Why would God wait until decades later to punish Job? Why would this be happening now? And doesn't God forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future, when we repent? But what Job is describing here is, in his experience, it's like all of the guilt that he's of sin that he's ever committed since childhood is just piling up. What is described in Verse 27 is Job being treated like a criminal. That's how he feels. It's like God has gone overboard in his response to Job. He's put him in stocks. He's then watching his every step. He's then setting a limit for how far he can walk. It's like he's the worst possible criminal. And these figures come from real life. The feet of a criminal were put in stocks as a public display to humiliate him and, of course, also to prevent escape. To watch all his paths means that even while he is in stocks, a guard is placed on 24-hour watch to make sure he isn't doing anything to escape. And then to set a limit for the soles of his feet is to restrict where he can walk when he is allowed to be briefly out of the stocks. And so the question that, that Job is raising here is like, how many layers of security, God, do you need against me? How, how bad of a guy is Job? Is he really that bad? Is he that bad of a bad guy? It's like Job is one of the Middle East's most wanted who has been finally captured. And in order to prevent any possibility of escape, he's carefully guarded, even while in stocks. The stocks themselves are behind bars. And all of this because of sins that Job thought were forgiven, that he figured were atoned for. 
through sacrifice, sacrifices that pointed to the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah to come, which he was receiving and recognizing by faith. He thought that as a man of faith, he was right with God. And then from chapter 13, 28 through 14, 6, Job is focused on the fact that man can't do anything to escape the judgments of God. <coughs> it seems to, to Job that, that God is intent on making his life miserable for no real reason. The question that naturally arises is, why is God so concerned about a creature like Job, like even like us, when our lives are so transient? Death begins the day we are born, where we slowly rot away, waste away like some rotten thing or like a garment that is moth-eaten. We live but a few days, analogous to a flower that withers or a shadow that soon disappears. Our days, as Job says, he's correct about this, right? Our days are determined by God, and there's nothing we can do to, to even add one extra second to, to, the, to the, the length of life that God has appointed. Verse 4 is a good summary of original sin. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? He says there's not one. We are born in sin. We are therefore born unclean. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves clean. And Job has never claimed innocence from sin, neither has he claimed to have lifted himself up by his own bootstraps through good works or religious ceremonies. Uh, he's never had the opinion or the idea that he could make himself clean. He knows he is at the mercy of God's grace offered in the gospel. He wonders why God would, though, open his eyes on mortal creatures like us. And make us to live a life so full of trouble when in no time we are going to be dead anyway. It's not like we're going to be able to escape what God has planned for us. And the best case scenario as Job sees it is that God would just look away and would just leave him alone so that he can experience something of a normal life. Even if it's just the life of a hired man. Now, think about that. The life of a hired man. What is that like? Is, well, <laughs> it's certainly not anything special. The hired man, he works by the sweat of his brow. At the end of the day, he eats his bread. That kind of a life is not normally what we, we would think of as a great life. It's not the life of the American dream. But the hired man does, at the end of a hard day, have wages and a period of rest. And for Job... A life where there is not sorrow 24-7 would be a relief. He's not asking for a life free of all suffering. Just It's like he's saying, bring me down to a level of suffering that belongs to a normal life under the curse of sin. The best case scenario is that God would stop the relentless attacks and let Job finish out his life with at least some relief, with some rest from what feels like constant judgments. And while an unbelieving, unrepentant sinner wouldn't have any basis for making such a request, Job is a man of faith, which means he is forgiven, which means he is loved by God. At least that's what he had figured, at least in the past. And wouldn't this entitle him to at least some measure of a life of joy? Is a forgiven child of God to experience nothing but the wrath and curse of God? I mean, even unbelievers experience something of the goodness of God in this life, even though that is the best that they can hope for. So Job, again, he's wrestling here with being treated 
basically like an unbeliever. Again, that's his perspective. We know he's not, but that's his perspective. And it appears the best that he can hope for is some grace and mercy on God's part before death comes. In chapter 14, verses 7 through 12, Job uses several analogies to picture the finality of death. Cutting down of a tree, the drying up of a river. And uh, he points out that when a tree is cut down, it's not always the end of that tree. Shoots can sprout up from a stump even when it appears that all life is gone. And the roots may sit there in the ground for a long time and the stump may even begin to rot away. It's just waiting for any sign of water. And with just the right conditions, it springs to life with buds and branches springing forth into a new tree. And as we think of that, we would say, right, this is a good analogy to use for the death of man, especially as a picture of resurrection, as a picture of how death is not the end. But notice Job is using this analogy to say that man is not like this in death. He says trees will come back to life after being cut down. But as for man, this is chapter 14, verse 10, he dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? When man dies, he leaves this earth permanently. The analogy that directly pictures the finality of death is this river that wastes away and dries up. And verse 12 is the conclusion, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. This is a key verse, uh, verse 12 here, uh, and there are several ways to understand these words that center on the understanding of what is meant by the heavens being no more. There are a number of places in Scripture that refer to the sun and moon, which are key parts of the heavens, as never-ending. So, for example, if you'll turn with me to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 35. It says, or thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So the Lord is saying that just as impossible as it is for the covenant to cease, is it possible for the natural order to cease? And this this understanding of the unending nature of creation is the basis for the references in the Psalms, for example, to the Messiah's reign being as long as that of the sun. So, for example, Psalm 72, Psalm 72, verse 17, says, May his name, this is talking about the coming Messiah, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. The emphasis in Job 14 is on the heavens existing forever into the future. Then Job is saying that man will never be aroused out of the sleep of death. Death then is forever. 
And if this is Job's point, then in verse 14, when he asks, if a man dies, shall he live again? The answer would be, well, the answer, it would be answered in the negative. No man will never live again. And that is true, right? It's true in a, cer- in a certain perspective, a certain sense. It's true that man never comes back to life on this sin-cursed earth. Man never does. But the idea of man's body never being raised is clearly not what Job believes according to verses 13 through 17. Here in the middle of chapter 14 is the climax as Job entertains the hope of resurrection. So I've offered one interpretation of verse 12 that has Job saying death is the end. Till the heavens are no more, could be forever, since the heavens will never stop existing. Scripture is clear about that. But scripture is also clear that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that are described as coming after the perishing of the old. So we have, for example, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. We also have Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Where it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's important to notice for a proper interpretation of these things is that earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that the earth that was flooded in Noah's day perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. We know that the earth was not annihilated by the flood, but it was greatly changed. Putting everything together, we can rightly say that the heavens and earth will never end. They will always be, and that they will perish, that they will not always be. And the key is to understand the nature of the perishing and the nature of being new. This creation will not be annihilated, but it will be greatly changed at the coming of the Lord. In fact, so great will be the change that it's appropriate to say that the heavens and earth as we know them now will be no more. And if we keep that truth in mind, then Job in verse 12 is allowing for the coming of the day of the Lord when the heavens will be no more and the dead will be raised. It's possible that Job understood something of the hope of God's people that there will be a new creation that is set free from sin and corresponding to this new creation will be a rising, a raising of the dead. After all, if God removes the curse from the heavens and earth 
It would also make sense that he's going to remove the curse as it touches his people in the form of death. In all of this, Job doesn't seem to make as clear of a distinction between man's body and spirit as we do today. Notice verse 13, where he anticipates himself being in Sheol, which is the Hebrew name for the grave. And there, even though his body is dead, notice he is alive in some sense. He speaks of himself as still existing, that he's there consciously longing that in time God's wrath will be passed. While Job doesn't have the exact vocabulary that we use today, we can recognize that he is anticipating the life that he would have after physical death in his soul. Most commentators agree that in verses 18 through 22, Job is describing a descent into death, a descent into Sheol. He talks about passing from this life and being sent away under the judgment of God, verse 20. The dead are separated uh, from life here on earth so as not to know what's going on with members of one's family, verse 21. But now all he can think about is his own condition. And I would translate verse 22 this way. Meanwhile, regarding his flesh, he will be in pain. And uh, in the Hebrew, that word doesn't refer only to physical pain, but to mental pain. And that would be the sense in which I think he's talking. Meanwhile, regarding his flesh, he will be in mental pain. And regarding his life, he will mourn. In other words, while earthly life goes on, he will be in a state of existence where he's utterly consumed with his separation from earthly life. Notice for our purposes now that Job anticipates that even after physical death, he will be conscious of what has happened to his body. Clearly, death is not annihilation. And Job, assuming that he must somehow in his present life be under the wrath of God, he asks that, God might at least allow him to have some rest until God's wrath would somehow be spent. He pleads with God that then at some appointed time he would be remembered and that God would bring him back to life. He knows that from an earthly point of view, when man dies, he is forever dead and will never live again. And that's true, right? We will never live again into this life. But Job doesn't leave things there. He says he will wait until his renewal should come. And it's important to note that the word for renewal is basically the same Hebrew word used back in verse 7 for those sprouts that spring forth from the stump of that cut down tree. Job was describing the death of man as being in contrast to those sprouts, saying that there is hope for a tree that the human body doesn't have. It's true that human bodies never come back into this life, but is that the end? Is there also, is there also no hope for humans after death? And over against all appearances and experience, Job in verse 14 anticipates the possibility of renewal for himself after death. A sprouting of himself back to life that God he knows could bring about. He says, all the days of my service, I will wait. And I would say that the better translation is not a hypothetical would wait, But all the days of my service, I will wait till my renewal will come. Again, not a hypothetical should come. All the days of my service, I will wait till my renewal will come. And he explains further addressing God, you will call and I will answer you. When God calls the dead back to life, they answer. 
Reminded of the words of the Lord in John chapter 5, verses 25 and then 28 through 29, where Jesus says, I truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. An element of prayer is defending our requests before God. In other words, as we pray, it's perfectly appropriate that we would, in a sense, reason with God and we would provide good reasons based on God's own word why God should be willing to answer our prayer. And Job does this by explaining why God might be willing to resurrect him. And at the heart of, of Job's reasoning is, this, is a personal relationship based on love. He states the matter this way, You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Verse 15, he's anticipating, that's why, God, you might be pleased to resurrect me. You would be longing for the work of your hands. He can recognize, that is, Job can recognize God not wanting to utterly destroy the work of his hands. Job has been created in God's image. And uh, more significantly, Job anticipates God longing in love to continue to have a relationship after death with those that he created to be in fellowship with him. And in fact, with those that he has promised in the covenant uh, to be their God. And yet, Job says, for that to happen, God's going to have to take a different stance toward him than is currently taking place. This is based on Job's assumption that God is coming against him in wrath, that God is refusing to forgive his sins. And uh, verses 16 and 17 describe what this new relationship could look like. He has has God numbering his steps. And uh, that's an expression that refers to God watching over every step that Job takes in life. But notice, not to watch over Job to find fault at every turn, uh, not watching over him in order to condemn him yet for more sin, but a watchful care this time, a watchful care that, that, that's motivated by love that protects Job. And this goes along with Job's longing for the justification that he thought he had. His hope is still that God would seal up his transgressions in a bag and cover over his iniquity, which is two ways of describing God's forgiveness of sin. And the idea is not that Job's sins would be stuffed into a bag and then sealed so that the bag can then later be opened. Um, no, Job is hoping that God will put his sins into a trash bag that is sealed shut, that is thrown away and never reopened. And notice Job is not claiming to be sinless. He knows that he needs atonement to be made for his sins, which is what the word cover over means. It's Christ's blood shed on the cross that covers our sins, that shields us from God's wrath by putting our sins out of view and by placing Christ's merits in their place. And when atonement is made and our sins are covered, we are free from the wrath of God and enabled to serve God without fear. Job, as a man of faith, is looking to God to provide such atonement in the coming Messiah. He knows that, notice, the forgiveness of sins is key to the hope of resurrection. If his sins are forgiven, then he has every reason 
to expect God to treat him in love and to have the hope that God will not abandon him in death, never to rise again. His hope is that God wants to continue to have a relationship with him. His hope is that God will remember him. When you and I face death, when we leave this world, our hope can very well be summed up in this desire that Job had. It should be our desire that God will remember us. Like the thief on the cross, we also should call out to God, Jesus, remember me. Is your desire for God to remember you? Death seems like the end. Our sins make us worthy of condemnation. Our sins, just if we consider our sins apart from grace and apart from our Savior, um, our sins make us worthy of condemnation rather than being remembered in love. But the gospel is that God remembers his covenant with his people. He does not ever forget you. He will not leave you to the sin and misery that you deserve. He does not ever in anger say, forget you. He especially doesn't put you out of mind when you're going through death. He will especially be with you then because his goal in sending Jesus, his goal in giving you faith, his goal in making you his own is to give you eternal life where even through death God protects you and he blesses you, he brings you to himself. The goal is for Christ to defeat death and to bring you to himself in glory. And Job had enough of a grasp of the Christian hope See how atonement and resurrection go together. But sometimes our faith and hope are not what they ought to be. And sometimes we give in to doubt because what we believe just doesn't seem possible. And as Job closes out his address, as we come to the end of 14, he turns to a rather hopeless description of death. The destruction of the human body through aging, disease, and afflictions is pictured by this mountain that slowly erodes away. Part of the intention of describing man as being like a mountain crumbling away is to highlight the inevitability and the finality of death. When God sentences man to death, there is nothing that can be done to stop it. And when death comes upon us, we are ever separated from the life we knew on earth. Our loved ones continue to live and they do their things, but if we're dead, we know nothing about it. Job ends this chapter on a rather sour and somber note. He pictures the dead person. I think he's really talking about himself. Uh, He pictures that person caught up in his own world of suffering, where all he can think about is how death destroyed him, how death ruined the life that he had on earth. All he can think about is the misery that he's in. And what we need to recognize is that Job has accurately, very accurately described the experience of death for the unbeliever. Now, some of what he has said applies to both believer and unbeliever. For example, not even believers will return to life on this earth as we know it. But as for an existence beyond death that is only misery, that is only the experience of unbelievers who die in their sins. Unbelievers will have their bodies raised from the dead. I don't think we always think about that. It's not just believers who will have their bodies raised. Unbelievers will have their bodies raised as well, but not to a life of renewal in a new heaven and new earth, but to an ongoing existence of death away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
Their physical bodies will not be set free from the pain and miseries of this life, but pain and misery will only be increased. For all eternity, their bodies will be unending vessels of misery. Hell is described in Matthew 13.50 as as like being thrown into a fiery furnace and as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9.48 says, Hell is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14.10 says, The unbeliever will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And Job is right to have such a hopeless view of the future, if in fact, if in fact, he is not forgiven of his sins. The finality, the horrors of death are not abated for those who die in their sins, which is what Job anticipates based on how his life on earth is going, because he's not sure of where he stands with God. And that is a horrible, horrible place to be. But regardless of how he feels and regardless of his doubts, he's longing for forgiveness and atonement in a way that shows him to be a man of faith. People of God, don't give in to doubts about where you stand with God just because life becomes hard. Don't give in to doubts about the future as you think about death. The rest and relief from affliction that you may be able to experience from time to time on earth is not the best that it's going to get. Job is right to long for a new life in a new place. Job is right to hope that God will remember him. Job is right to wait for a change, to wait for a renewal that only God can bring about. He is right to hope for forgiveness. He is right in expecting God to long for the work of his hands. Job wrestled with doubt about these realities, but thankfully all that is required is the faith of a mustard seed. All that is required is the faith to leave any prospect of hope in the hands of God and to trust that he can do what is humanly impossible. And yet at the same time, people of God, you have the basis for great hope, for a hope that is stronger than Job's because God has revealed to us that death is not the end. Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead. Job was on to something. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, that is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? As people of faith, as a person of faith, as people of faith, you believe this. And as people of imperfect faith, you believe this while asking God, to help your unbelief. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that the idea of resurrection from death is something that seems impossible, something that we have never seen take place. But Father, we trust that it has taken place by miracles that you brought about in history in your own way, even through prophets, but also through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the hope that you do give us as your people that death is not the end, 
that one day the bodies that are put into the grave will be raised. Father, give us hope in these things. Help us uh, in times of doubt. Help, help us with our unbelief to rise above what seems possible, to rise above what we just see with our own eyes, to recognize that there are great things that you have in store for us as your people. We thank you that the fellowship that you have created with us in Jesus Christ is not disrupted by death. Death is not the end for us. We thank you that there is coming a new heavens and new earth. That in a sense this earth will end, in a sense it will not end. This creation will go on. Um, And Father, we thank you that we can be a part of that by your grace, by your mercy. We thank you that you, by your grace, do not give us what our sins deserve, which would be death for all eternity. So, Lord, we give thanks for the hope that we have in Christ, in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.